This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nunn, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. It's lovely to talk to you again. Kate Nunn is the author of six previous novels, including The Botanist's Daughter, winner of the 2020 Winston Graham Historical Fiction Prize, and The Silk House. She is also a former magazine and book editor. So Kate's here today to talk about her new novel. It's a historical mystery fiction called The Only Child. Where did you work as a book editor? Um, that was in London um, and actually, and in Australia, uh, in London for Random House and Century Hutchinson, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, a little bit very briefly for Chateau and Windus and then oh, right. as a very junior, junior person. And then for an illustrated book company here called Weldon Publishing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. But yes, no. I did big illustrated books in the end, cookbooks and things like that. But I, I remember working on a book on Chinese food for eight months solidly uh, and thinking that actually there had to be something better to do. Um, and that's when I applied for a job in magazines, actually, because I wanted to write more, um, yeah. funnily. So and all what, my jobs were always in pursuit of more writing. What magazines did you were you drawn to? What oh, did you do? They were, I worked at Vogue Entertaining and Travel. Oh, wow. Still in the food section. I love it. Yes. And then I was a senior editor on Gourmet Traveller and editor of Gourmet Traveller Wine magazine, which was a terrific job. So you didn't venture out too far, though. No, no, not in the magazines. No, I stayed in food, wine and travel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's the kind of like the, life that I love as well. <laughs> so tell me, how did you start out? How did you come to writing? I had always written and it had been that secret dream that I never dared even admit to myself. I thought people much cleverer than me wrote books and, you know, I, I couldn't, how could I possibly sustain an idea over 80 or 90,000 words? But I knew I was always writing and I was always think, coming up with ideas and I had notebooks and I began to sort of do a little bit of reading about the craft of writing and that kind of thing. And then one day somebody came up to me in a playground, one of an, another mother in the school playground and said great guess what I've got a book deal and I was like no that's my dream (laughs) but funnily enough it gave me permission to start writing and I was freelance writing and editing for features at the time and I had a gap of six weeks and uh, could manage financially not to not to worry too much and so I gave it a go and what I found I really enjoyed I didn't know what I didn't know honestly I had no clue but what I really loved was the feeling of having written at the end of the day and kind of moved the story forward and spent time with the characters I was dreaming up yeah um, yes so, and that became my first book Rose's Vintage so how did you why did you come to Australia tell me about your growing up and oh, that I was working, I, I had actually been made redundant from my book publishing job in London. And so yeah. I was doing a bit of temping. And then I got a job in a ski resort and just had some fun. I was cooking um, as a chalet girl. And I met an Australian boy. 
And so ah. I followed him out here. Um, that didn't work out in the end, but I fell in love with Australia instead. Though I went back to England for a short while, I knew I wanted to come back and live in Australia and I've lived here ever since. Have you got family back there? Yes, yes, yes. I do. And my family's in Canada as well. So we're kind of spread. Yeah. Right. Okay. So writing features um, and writing articles are two very different skills, obviously. And so talk to me about the challenges of making that adjustment to long form. It was a huge challenge. And if I knew now what I you know, knew then what I know now, I might never have done it, never have tried. Um, but I'm very glad I did. It was uh, I knew how to write a good sentence and a good paragraph um, and mm. to be articulate. What I didn't really know was how to tell a story and the kind of the architecture behind a novel. Um, and so that's what I really had to learn. And I think in, in the process of writing my first novel and the feedback I got from my uh, the agent that I found at the time that helped me learn. And then ever since then, I'm addicted to learning and craft books. And I'm always trying to make each novel better than the last. Mm, mm. We often talk about that um, on this podcast. And I guess it's all called practice, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. it is. And it, there's that whole idea of 10,000 hours of practice to be you know, proficient yes. at something. And I definitely yeah. think uh, that is required. Yeah. And for being a writer and author as well. You know, when we look at musicians, for instance, you know, they're meant to be practicing four or five hours a day and some practice yes. all day long. And yeah. often we don't apply that to writing. People think they can just write a book and out it goes oh. and the world will love it. Absolutely. And yes. And it doesn't and, you know, work. Your first that draft way. is done. Yes. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and that it takes time and, and real bloody mindedness to just keep going, even when you might have no hope of ever seeing it published or ever, you know, making any money out of it. And for, for a while, I was really thinking, gosh, you know, am I wasting my time here? And mm-hmm. there's that voice that always sits on your shoulder going, really, what are you doing? You know, you mm-hmm. could be spending time with your family or, you know, earning proper money, all that kind of stuff. But I had a little post-it note on my laptop that just said, believe. And so mm-hmm. every time I would sit down, I'd just go, right, just write today. Don't think about what's ahead. Just write, keep writing the story. Do you write every day? How do you, what's the approach to work for you? It is, I do treat it very much like a job um, in that when I'm in the drafting process, I try and write every weekday and I give myself a a weekly word count rough approximately. And so if I haven't achieved that by Friday, I do, or I feel like I'm behind, I'll just sneak away and do a couple of hours at the weekend. But uh, yes, and it's, but I, you know, I do give myself days off and, and if it's really not working, I might take myself off for a, a walk on the beach or something like that. But I'm mm. always thinking about it. It's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning, when I'm in that generative phase. And the last thing I think about when I go to sleep at night. And sometimes it wakes me up in the middle of the night and I write ridiculous notes to myself that I then cannot decipher in the morning. Mm. It is all consuming, isn't it? Once that story and once that, I mean, I remember talking to Michael Robotham, um, who I adore, and I just love his writing and his latest book is mm, absolutely terrific. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he told me once that his wife said to him, are you with, I can't remember who the character was, but it was a female character <laughs> in the book. And I think they were having lunch or breakfast or something and she said oh are you with Jane you know and he said said, yes but it is that isn't it yes it is is. Uh, I think yeah you you have to love the process um definitely to want to be a writer and how do you process that you know once that story's in your head because you've written you know this is your seventh book now how do you then park it like is the end the end for you is the end of reading the end of thinking about it 
Um, it is until I come to a stage like this with a book about to go out into the world. And then I start thinking about those characters again, because I'm talking about them. Um, and then I'm like, oh, no, I actually can't look at the book, because I'll find things I want to change, or I might find a mistake. And I, I just, you know, have to, to back off from it. No, usually by by the time I've read it a gazillion times, I've really, I'm happy not to have to think about it again. Mm. Yes. Mm. And so I'm, they, I'm, those characters yeah, they just go yeah, out of they your do. head. They do. They yeah. do. Um, to, to a point, they kind of go to the back of my head. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I'm raring to go on the next story and other characters take their place, I suppose, yeah. And speaking of the next story, talk to me about ideas. How is it that you come to the plots? Are you a person that picks that up from reading, from writing? I mean, where does your inspiration come from? I think it's um, it can be the confluence of a couple of ideas, um, it might be a setting and I think, well, wouldn't be, you know, would a story set there, what would happen there? Um, mm. it can be a character, for instance, in the only child, the first character who appeared to me is Frankie, who's in the contemporary strand and she's really quite feisty and no nonsense. And she's a very independent woman. And she was just standing there with her hands on her hips, tapping her toe at me and going, come on, write this story, Kate. Um, so she was really vivid and strong in my mind. Mm. Um, so it can be that character. And then, um, just noodling around the internet, reading the newspaper, doing a bit, you know, a bit of research with my kind of my my ears turned on to things that might make good stories. Mm. Um, and I happened to be looking into I don't know how I came across it, um, mother and baby homes. And the mm. fact that in 2M there was this awful grisly discovery of these hundreds of skeletons tiny baby skeletons in a septic tank in the in the, the grounds mm. of this mother and baby home. Um, and I remember talking to Rebecca Saunders, my publisher, about the vague ideas I was having. And she was just like, don't make there be too many skeletons, please, Kate. But uh, so the idea of setting it in a mother and baby home and then also sort of came to the fore. Um, I'd been very aware of what was going on in the Supreme Court in the US. And it had really, uh, really saddened me and incensed me um but I wasn't I, I didn't know why well apart from the obvious reasons mm -hmm. you know but it doesn't directly affect me but nevertheless I'm horrified by it mm -hmm. and had been aware of that for the last few years and so the idea of um the the changes to women's reproductive freedom and their rights was that was simmering away in the back of my mind as well so mm -hmm. it was the kind of the confluence of those those ideas um and then I read for for this particular book I happened to come across a non-fiction book called The Girls Who Went Away. Mm -hmm. um, and it was real life um, stories of women who had been forced to give up their babies for adoption. And I thought about the fact that quite often we hear the stories of the adoptees, but not so often the stories of, of women and the damage it does to them, both mentally and physically over the years of not knowing what happened to their baby, never seeing them again, wandering, mm. you know, every day, every year on their birthday. And so I thought that was quite an interesting angle to explore. So it's really, it's a bringing together of several ideas mm. um, to, to find a story in there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
there's two things I want to run with here just to there is, and you will know this, Kate, there is a lot of criticism um, very often about women's fiction or commercial fiction and about, I don't know why, but there is a, a feeling out there that if everybody loves a story that it's not literary enough. But what I have been finding, and, and you'll have a view on this, is with the surgeons, and we are, we're seeing a lot more historical fiction, we're seeing a lot more women's fiction, um, we're seeing a lot more stories from women's perspective. Now, the way I feel about that is these are stories that haven't been told and haven't been told by men or women in other genres, you know, um, and very often they're women that were always in the story but were left out of the story in the past. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that's um, always been one of the things that has interested me is taking those under-acknowledged experiences of women, um, the the untold stories, absolutely, because I'm bringing so ho- hopefully something new to the mm. to the literary landscape the reading landscape yeah and I think that genre does it really well yeah it really is a good platform for it and it's hugely popular and it's hugely popular because women are reading about women and it's empowering women yes definitely and seeing also you know comparing and contrasting what might have happened in the past with the situation now and realizing Mm. that there still very much are parallels Mm. um Tell, in, talk to in, me about the importance of historical accuracy in fiction. It's For me, I do my absolute utmost to make sure it's mm. accurate. Uh, I think once a reader spots something that they know is wrong, it pulls them right out of the story. And, and believability is so important in fiction. Um, and, in fact, um, one of the early reviewers of The Only Child said that um, the, the book read like nonfiction. And for me as a fiction writer, that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've done part, part of my job in that way. That mm. it, it it's a compliment. Real. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Do you spend yeah. a lot of time on research? I write a book a year. And, yeah. And um, I do spend several months on research. Some people might spend years on research. There comes a point when I know um, – the, the first scene, and I've got a really, what I hope is a strong idea of the milieu, the, the environment, the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they eat. I watch a lot of movies, if I can, that have been made at the time period, um, read books that are written at the time, as well as doing very general and then more specific research. So I do as much as I can without trying to get lost down mm. too many rabbit holes. Mm. And once that first scene is really nagging at me to, to start writing, that's when I start. And then as I go along, I might do little bits of research when I realize I need a specific bit of information. But mm. often the research will suggest elements in the story itself. So I do do it you know, a few months beforehand. And mm. that feels like the most wonderful indulgent luxury. I remember mm. with the botanist's daughter going down to our local outdoor ocean pool and taking a stack of textbooks um, and history books and my husband just looking at me and raising his eyebrows and going, oh, you're working, are you? And I'm like, yes, I am actually. Mm, mm. <laughs> well, I, I, I tend to think that um, that authors or writers, if you like, are working all of the time. Like we were saying earlier, the story yes. is always in the head, so you don't switch yes. off. Yes. Um, I want to talk about something else that you touched on, Rebecca Saunders and your editor. Talk to me about the relationship between editor and writer. Um, I'm ex- consider myself extremely fortunate mm. in that relationship with her. She's wonderful. And 
Yes. And she she's really um, available, which is incredible, almost too available sometimes. And we, we can be texting back and forth at night. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I should stop this because it's not fair on her. I mean, I don't mind because I'm, you know, I'm home. But anyway, um, she's great for giving me feedback and um, really seeing what I'm trying to do. And to have somebody in your corner who believes in you as a writer is is just fantastic. She's also got a fantastic commercial sensibility, an eye for cover design and for p- positioning a book in the market mm. as well. She's and very she clever. and I don't we don't always see eye to eye on that, but I completely 100% respect mm. her commercial experience and and um, you know if she says something is is the way to go, then I I'm on board for mm. sure. I want to talk more about that relationship like in terms of of producing work because often um, as a writer as you know you're home you're alone in your head you're writing and I often think that that collaboration must be so crucial because it's part of it is having feedback like in an office environment if you like isn't it part that's part of the relationship yeah yes yes and somebody to bounce ideas off and um even if I don't have a book under contract with her I will often just shoot her an email when I've got a bit of a blurb and that's often how I start when I've been thinking about a book for a while I'll write myself a pretend jacket copy and that helps me really, it brings me back to, to the book and what I'm trying to do if I meander along the way. And I'll shoot her that and she'll she'll sort of, might have a few points to make, um, uh, uh, you know, she might just be like, fantastic, I can't wait to read it. I'm really intrigued now. And that sort of feedback's really helpful as well. Just go back there. Did you say that you wrote the, the back cover blurb and there's actually no book? Yes. Yes. That's often one of the first things I do. Um, because you know, I get to the point where, well, I write it all down. I'm like, Oh, I'm making it sound really interesting. And it's, it was one of my jobs when I worked in book publishing. And one of my favorite jobs was writing the cover copy. And I go, Oh, you had that a sounds book. really interesting. Yeah. I had a book to write from. Yeah. But I have kind of vague ideas in my head. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, Oh, I really want to read that book. And I'm like, can somebody else write it, please? Oh, no. Okay. Actually you have to write it, but it really does help focus, draw my focus. Then I, and if I ever get, because you can get in the doldrums sometimes in the middle of a book, yeah. um, and I go back to it and I go, oh, yeah, that exciting stuff was supposed to happen. All right, let's get back on board with this. Yeah. So, and think- very often that, that cover coffee doesn't often change that much from when I, you know, I might finesse it and tweak it when it so it actually does fit the manuscript, but then I send it off to Rebecca. Um, and she, you know, she, she makes some changes, but not often not too many. Well, I think I've I, I think I've talked to well, I've certainly recorded almost four hundred podcasts. Um oh so I would have spoken yeah, I would have spoken to at least three hundred <laughs> authors and no one has ever told me that. That's oh, a first. That, yeah. That could that's be a, a trick. First. Could be a useful useful tip. <laughs> you might start something there, Kate. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wanna go back to um working on magazines and in food. Is is that a, a passion of yours or was that just a job? No, oh, it was absolutely a passion. Yes. And mm. I always think about food and meals and I remember meals. I can remember the dinner I ate for my 10th birthday. Um, mm. I just have. And I love to cook at home. Um, and mm. now where we're living, I've got a big veggie patch as well. So that's just been kind of a fun thing. But um, yes, no, I love food and I, I can think about flavor and imagine flavors quite well. So I, Well, I wanted to touch on that. 
Yeah, because, um, you know, I particularly love a fiction book that um, talks about food mm. um, and that acknowledges that characters eat. I quite like oh, that. Oh, gosh, Even, yes, yes. Don't you like that? Yeah. When in, For sure, and it doesn't have to be a feast. It doesn't have to be no. delicious food. Yeah. It, but just it can be really specific food that, yeah. that tells you so much about the character and where they are. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah, you know, sure. eating a meat pie, for instance, you know, those yeah, things. That tells you a lot. It does yeah. tell you a lot, doesn't it? I remember when I first started reading Patricia Cornwall and uh, her first two books in particular, you know, What People Ate was the first time I'd seen it that descriptive in, in crime fiction. And uh-huh. I always I always quite like that. Um, but that's because, yes. like you, I like food a lot. But it does, yes. I think, validate a story for me because we all eat. Yes, for sure. And it's it's a way of adding texture and depth and layers to a to a a story into characters by the way they eat, when they eat, how they prepare food, yeah. um, what they, you know, who they might eat with. Mm. I often really enjoy writing meal scenes because yeah. they can be really kind of back and forth and quick fire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good that you've been able to bring those two concepts together as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Isn't that right? Is this the genre that you're most comfortable in, happiest in? Um, I am veering more and more towards crime. There's always Mm. been um, uh, a crime and a bit of a mystery, more of a mystery in my novels. Even The Botanist's Daughter had a a big mystery and a crime with it. But um, my focus is bringing that to the fore now. I do like a story that um, unfolds in two timelines and so keeps the reader turning the pages and keeps them guessing. And I enjoy writing that style of story. But as to whether I'll continue to write, you know, historical fiction I'm not sure it may be that it evolves more into you know two time periods but they might be a lot closer together but I, how- I enjoy the solving of the pro- solving of a puzzle yeah 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 and you you did that well um and you know mystery slightly different to crime isn't it you know yeah. um yeah. yeah it's a different slant do you think that if you change genres what happens with a reader it's very hard. Um, yeah. It's very hard because the way the whole of the way publishing is set up is to to guide pe- readers to to you know if they like a certain t- type yeah. of book, it looks a certain way. Mm. Um, and if they discover a, an author they really like, that you know they'll look for more from that author. But I think some of the elements that I have in my books will still will obviously still be there. Yeah, um, I, I don't think it's a big shift for you. I think that no, I don't think this book yeah. is a big shift. Maybe the next one might be. It's, it's kind of a bit like yeah. t- turning the Titanic, just slowly, yeah. slowly. Mm. Um, will and hopefully bring bring the readers with me. But what I'm hoping for are kind of page turning stories, but ones that have some poignancy still yeah. about them. Yeah, and you know, um, you're right. They're page turners, but they're also. I feel that your writing has a depth of emotion that um, sometimes is missing in commercial oh, fiction. Thank you. Yeah, Thank it's really you. lovely. Um, Kate, <laughs> you do try. The book is called <laughs> The Only Child. Kate Nunn, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. It's lovely to talk to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.